This is an ABC podcast. Today I'm with two men, Vic Sims and Luke Peacock. Vic and Luke are both musicians from different eras. They're good friends despite the age difference of many decades. Vic Sims comes from the very birth of Australian rock and roll. His first hit single, called Yo-Yo Heart, came out in 1959. Vic was just 15 years old with a high, sweet tenor voice. Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo Heart Time has come for us to part Gotta go because I know You only have a yo-yo heart Formed all over Australia with Johnny O'Keefe, Buddy Holly, and Shirley Bassey. In the 60s, Vic's career started to slide. He did some crime and he was sent to the notorious Bathurst Prison for seven years. And while he was inside, he started to write songs to keep him sane. Songs that were more personal, honest, and raw. And he began to play these songs in the prison yard. The 10 songs were amazingly recorded in prison by a major record label in bizarre circumstances. And the result was a classic album called The Loner. Let me know you, let me show you I can be so understanding Not the type who'd be demanding Maybe it's true Over time though, the album faded away. RCA scrubbed it from their catalogue. Copies of the loner became almost impossible to find. And that's when, a couple of years ago, Luke Peacock stumbled across a copy of the loner. Luke, you were working at an Aboriginal radio station in 2011. Did you find Vic's music or did it find you? Don't know. I think a lot to think it found me. It came in on a DAT tape. I had piles of stuff just manually transferring onto a computer. And this one actually came down especially from the general manager's office, from his top drawer. And he said, look after this one. Can you transfer this one but don't lose it and return it to my desk when you're finished recording it? And it was Vic Sims, the loner. The first song that grabbed me was the first song I heard, Get Back Into The Shadows. And then... Every song after that proceeded to grab me, to be honest. Why? What do you think I, it was? Why did you? I just loved it. I just thought it was great. I just had this instant. I, I loved the sound of it, the singing, the beat, the lyrics. Once I started playing it more often, obviously, I, I started to pick up on the lyrics more and just became more and more drawn to it. There, there are a lot of songs there about you know, pain and alienation. Did you feel an affinity with that? Yeah, in a way. I mean... It kind of reminded me more of friends and family. You know, I, I felt like I've had a pretty privileged upbringing, you know, in comparison to, to what Vic may have. But, you know, I also have many close, dear friends and family that have had a pretty roller coaster life. Your family are Torres Strait Islanders. Yes. Is music a big part of your family culture? Yeah, it's, it's huge. My nana played guitar and sang. All the brothers of my father all play and sing. And all the sisters join in. <laughs> and the family's just carried on doing that. Did you know anything about 
the musician, the songwriter, on that dat tape, Vic Sims? Did you no. know anything about him at all? Absolutely nothing. I didn't even know if he was still alive. And I did start to find this story on the bits and pieces that were available on the internet. But I also really wanted a copy of, the, you know, an original vinyl copy of the album. And that was one thing I did find out, that the only one that I knew that existed had sold about 15 years prior for about $250 or something. This journey that's kind of led us to here began with me trying to find a copy of the record. So Vic was a real man of mystery then, yeah, this guy you'd absolutely. never heard of. How did you track down Vic? Well, I was listening to Poor Folk's Happiness and that was one that really reminded me of one particular friend of mine and I felt like I wanted to learn the song, maybe play it at a gig somewhere, just to kind of give a bit of light on this song. And I started learning the song and writing down the lyrics as I was listening back to it and I got stuck on this one phrase and I just had no idea what, what he was thinking about. <laughs> so I just took this snippet of the song. <laughs> I flicked an email around to everyone saying, can someone listen to this and tell me what this guy's trying to saying here, what these words are? Half an hour after that, the general manager came downstairs. Instead of handing me another tape, he handed me Vic's number and said, why don't you give him a ring and ask him? <laughs> so you had to ring him, cold call Vic Sims, man yeah, of mystery. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and what did you say? I think I just introduced myself and tried not to freak him out too much and told him I was this kid from Queensland that was really enjoying his music and I think he was a bit bewildered. Some kid was ringing him from Queensland that seemed to be really, really into this album that he'd recorded 40 odd years ago. Your mum's a well-known socialite Your dad's in real estate And you come to this dingy hole Where we all congregate is it because you cannot stand the so-called friends you be? Do you feel you're on level terms with folk who can't be? Vic Sims, man of mystery, is sitting right next to you at the moment. Hello, Vic. Hey, how are you, Richard? Tell me about where you come from, Vic. I come from La Perez. I'm a Bidjigal man. That's B-I-D-J-I-G-A-L. We're the First Nations people of this land, first discovered peoples, and I'm part of that. My forebears were there when Cook and Philip and La Perez and all these people come into the bay. Obviously, we're still there today, and I'm the last man standing who was actually born on Bidjigal land, so I feel quite proud of that. My traditional beliefs, even though we live in an urban society, my my traditional beliefs are very strong. I'm a 24-7 blackfellow, and that's part of my life, and the music makes up the other half, I guess. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Well, if you want to call it a house, it uh, was just a, some tin and hessian thrown together with a dirt floor, and I remember my mum, on a hot day, used to give me a little uh, a jam tin along with my brothers and sisters and a, a, a good-sized stick and say, listen, the, the tar should be durable enough to collect and put in this tin so we could patch up the holes in the roof. So she said, go over there, take your tin, take your stick, get get the tar as it's starting to melt in the heat. Off the road? Bro- off the road. And that's how you'd patch up the house? That's how we patched up the house. She'd have some old rag and stuff and she'd, she'd put the tar together with the rag and, and plug the holes up. But it was a good happy time. Was it a loving family? Was it a, a oh, happy, we had much happy love for home? each other. So tell me, Vic, how you came. How I came to be. How, how you, yeah, musically. How it was that at the age of eleven, you came to be on stage at a football social. There was a little hall at the side of this picture theatre in, in Maroub Junction, called the Kawana Milk Bar. 
and just down underneath was a little social centre gathering for people. So I got there one night after a game and there was a little quartet playing. It was called the Kevin Jacobson Quartet and the singer, his name was Cole Jacobson. So they took a break and they said, look, if we're a little worn out and if anyone wants to get up and sing a song, you're welcome to do so. What did you sing? I sung Tutti Fruity, the old little Richard classic. They said, we're, we're just trying to break into showbiz too. But if we do, and when we do, you're there. Weeks and months went past. So one day this old green FJ pulled up outside and out uh, come the Jacobson brothers. And uh, there's no point knocking on the door because we didn't have a door. So they tapped on the corrugated iron and uh, I, I was outside playing with kids and my mum yelled out. And, and we sat down and they said, well, Mrs Sims, the reason we're here is because uh, we've just cracked it to make our stage debut. It was at the Manly Embassy. I think it was the 15th of October, 19... 19- 57, they were looking forward to performing. And they said, we well, you want your son to be part of it. And me, my mum and dad said, well, you know, we're finding it hard. Have a look at us. We've got a dirt floor. We've got pots and pans laying around the place that need to catch water. We were extremely poor. They said, well, you don't worry about that. We'll buy him whatever he needs, a pair of shoes and jeans. But I said, who else is on the show? They said, a man called Johnny O'Keefe. So I rehearsed uh, about four or five songs. Tootie Fruity, Red Sails in the Sunset and stuff like this. Colin Jacobson changed his name to Cold Joy. Cold Joy. And his band was Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. Yes. And you're performing with him and yeah. Johnny O'Keefe. Yeah. So this puts you at 11, 12 years old. At I was the 11 very, years of age. 11 years of age yeah. at the very birth of Australian rock and roll. Mm-hmm. What do you remember of your first gig on stage, a proper gig yeah. dressed up in new gear? What do you remember yeah. of that? I knocked it down. What do you mean by knocked it down? The, you, the audience went mad. Yeah, yeah. I uh, really impressed. Dancing? And, uh, yeah, they got up in the aisles and danced and, and I'd go backstage and I'd keep with this prominent kiss curl hanging over his forehead and say, you're done well tonight, kid. He said, but don't wear jeans. Nobody wears jeans. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that's, that, that's what we could afford at the time. He said, you'll never, ever see people performing jeans as you go through life. You know, I see how wrong he was about 10 years down the track, you know. And uh, so anyway, that was it. And I got paid my 36 bob. And we were running to catch the last ferry home, to catch the last tram back to La Perouse. And these suits running out. Chased us down to the wharf at Manly, and they said, "Oh, look, hang on." They said, "We want to talk to you. We need to uh, officially audition your son over the next couple of days. We've got a a show coming on at the Tivoli Theatre, and uh, we have an overseas star coming out. She comes from a place called Tiger Bay." And when I got to the Tivoli and I went through my rehearsal, I said, "I said, who's the lady?" And they said, "Well, her name is Shirley Bassey." I said, "Is she well known?" <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning of a career. From there, I started to do commercials for uh, Dairy Farmer's Milk. I've done a few little sing-along commercials. And then came the bandstands and... And Six O'Clock Rock as Six well. O'Clock Rock. Come on, everybody, it's Six O'Clock. <laughs> Come on, everybody, it's time to rock. <laughs> well, it's up and it's rock. A lot of those shows were live too, live to air, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I started to travel interstate and I just got into trouble for not being at school and got a rap across the knuckles because it was quite imperative that Aboriginal children be educated at that time. 
So I got into a bit of strife. My mum got me what they called an exemption to leave school so I could go into it full time. So I was 14 and 10 months when I really hit my straps, so to speak. And I had some great support. O'Keefe encouraged me as well as Cole Joy. And I did a thing called Jukebox Jury on Channel 7 and I was put up against Bobby V's record. So I did a song called Yo-Yo Heart, my first recording. So they voted Yo-Yo Heart the winner of that segment. Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo Heart Time has come for us to part Gotta go because I know You only have a yo-yo heart You dangled me upon a string My love didn't mean a thing While I dangled on a string You were having one big fling You had to walk the dog you said Around the world you said we'd go I stayed on to save the dough Double crossing so and so You are with a guy named Joe Yo, 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 yo So you recorded your first single, Yo, Yo, Heart You're kind of like, I don't know, it's little Stevie Wonder mixed, mixed up with Michael Jackson There's really no one else quite sound, sounding quite like you in Australia at the time, was there Vic? No, I was, I was the, the, the little golden haired boy at the time I was the youngest recording artist in the land as well as probably the uh, youngest TV star at the time. You said you toured with people like Shirley Bassey oh, and Buddy Holly. I had the pleasure of talking to Buddy Holly in 1958. I got to be in the know after my first recording. And I went back and there's this guy sitting in the corner looking quite nondescript with a pair of horn-rimmed glasses on. So I said, what's your name? He said, oh, Buddy, call me Buddy. And he, I said, I haven't seen your name on the program. He said, yeah, they put the crickets instead of Buddy Holly in the crickets on the program. He said, I've heard about you. I was 12 and I got to meet this guy who went on to become one of the great rock and rollers of all time. Peter Allen was a guy you worked with as well. Yeah, on many occasions. Tell me about the day when you went on tour with him and you and he got kicked out of a pool. Well, I'll tell you how it came about. We were touring uh, Western New South Wales. There's me, Cole joined the Joy Boys, Judy Stone, the Allen brothers, including Peter Allen. So we got into town early. It was sweltering and... Let's all go to the pool. And this is three years before the Freedom Ride, Charles Perkins and his colleagues. And so we went down to the pool and uh, I got in with the others. I was running and doing swan dives and I thought I was having a great time. And this guy came up and he said, listen, pal, you're going to leave. I said, why? He said, how many other black kids do you see here? I was the only one there. But Peter Allen seen what was going and come over. He said, what's going on? And I said, I've got to leave. He said, why? And the bloke said, well, there's no Aboriginal people allowed in this pool. So I said, okay, if that's the case, but uh, you will hear more about this. So they kicked me out. He said, well, if he's not good enough to stay, we won't won't stay here either. And that was my first taste of prejudice. Even to this day, I've never known any of my musical colleagues in my long career who's judged me on anything other than what I think the talent I had. eh? When you were kicked out, were you angry then? That was just strange to me because I've never experienced that before. I was just shocked about it to know that it, this existed. So when I, I got to hear about the, the Freedom Ride, I said, well, this is going to open your eyes because I'm three years ahead of you people. You can sing on a stage. You can't swim in a pool. That's true. Uh, but uh, out of that came inspiration as I got older to include that in some of the songs from The Loner. I'm with Vic Sims. 
Vic Sims became a boy rock and roll star at the age of 11 in the late 1950s, right at the birth of Australian rock and roll. Later on, he would record a powerful album called The Loner, which would be lost, more or less, to history until it was rediscovered by my other guest, Luke Peacock. Your singing career was going from strength to strength, and you recorded a track for your B-side of Yo-Yo Hut, which was I Want a Pop. Well, it was given to me by the A&R man at Festival Records. He said, because they used to get all these records sent over from various companies, and they say, oh, we've got something here that might suit you and that you might like. Have you ever had that experience of being in the car and one of your songs has come on the radio? Yes, it's a bit strange. I was in my car and uh, squiring some grandchildren around and they say he's an oldie but a goodie did you tell them it was you no they said yes you pop there's you pop you know and i said hey this is great what did what difference did your musical life make for your life at home on the mission yeah. for example would you were you still li- going home to live in that house yeah no we, we eventually got modern and we moved into a fibro asbestos filled house we even had real running cold water and we had an old copper who used to smoke the joint out. We had a real toilet where uh, the man used to come and take the pan away in those days, and we <laughs> thought it was great. And we lived just about 150 yards up from the beach, and we watched our uncles and grandfathers and that do the fishing. So it complemented our diet. You know, they'd go f- uh, take the net around and get all these, these fish when the mullet were on the run. So we had a pretty good life. Then I got older, and I got s- smarter, and I become a... I went off the tracks and I had exorbitant amount of money for a child. How hard was it to stay level-headed once your career started to fade in, in the 1960s? Well, uh, I thought, well, what do I do? I was an alcoholic at 15. I mean, it wasn't just beer, it was flagons of wine, for God's sake. I got to be 22 and uh, I really hit the skids. I run out of uh, will and I run out of money and uh, I thought such the, the need for alcohol became too great and I said, well, I had no dough. So I committed a robbery. I went to jail. I thought, where do I go from here? You're given seven years in seven jail. Seven years. How hard was it to face that thought of going to jail for seven years? Victor? Well, Bathurst being Bathurst, you know, it had a reputation of being the toughest jail. The conditions were atrocious. How cold would it get there? Oh, it was freezing. I had eight blankets and I was still pretty cold because the, the sleet and, and, and the rain would come through the window. You'd get up in the morning in the winter and you'd go to turn on a tap or flush the toilet. It was completely frozen. You know, so there was no running water there was on those no days. Running water, no. Would you get sent to solitary confinement? Yeah, I had a friend of mine who worked in, in the kitchen and he dropped me six extra bread rolls, he said, yeah, you know. And I got nine days solitary for that. What does that do to you? I, I, I can't imagine me. what that I is. Mean, it was just a dark room and, and, and you got out every three days to do some exercise. What did you do to stay sane over those nine I days? I ripped the buttons off my shirt and threw them on the floor or up against the wall and went looking for him in the dark. 
most of them I found. But that was a, that was a, an awakening. It was just part of the deal. So I looked to keep sane through writing the way I saw it life before I went into jail. So you kept a notebook. Tell me about that yeah. notebook. The book well, itself. it was a judge's notebook that I managed to get a hold of through the bookbinding job I had because I operated the guillotine and I had the best job in the jail. I actually earned $2 a week. So I asked permission to, to get this book and I've still got it today. And it's got my prison number on it and the songs and the lyrics I wrote and the changes of the lines. It's a treasure to me. So what were you writing down? I was writing down things as I seen it, like uh, get back into the shadows, for instance. I went over to a pub at Brighton the Sands and I got kicked out of that pub. And they said, well, we, we can't serve you. You don't look like a, the clientele we like in this hotel. I said, okay. So I left it and I, I went home and I, there was an old saying and the line come from a Bill Brunsey song. Bill Brunsey was an old black blues singer where he sang, if you're brown, stick around, if you're white, all right, if you're black, get back and do the shadows, you know. And it was common amongst Aboriginal people. It was that they, a lot of them sang that little song in a ditty, you know. So that memory was wrapping around you. was wrapped in my mind. In your mind and, yeah. and, and while you were in prison. And, and, yeah, and I, I remembered the song, Get Back Into The Shadow. So I just added to that... To, 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 little verse and I walked into this dive one night the air was thick from smoking a flunky said hey boy get out I said you must be joking a flunky said hey boy get out I said you must be joking well I sat up near the group that played the sound was loud and tinny here I was mama's dark haired boy I was her brown eyed big this joint was fine, it blew my mind I just got down to grooving Then I looked around to see this man who Said, hey boy, get moving He said, if you're, if you're brown, stick round And if you're white, he said, it's alright And if you're black, you get back into the shadows Had you written songs before? No. No. So I had the lyrics, but I had to get the melody and get to play it. So how did you do that? So the system started to change. They allowed musical instruments in. You could grow a beard and grow your sideburns a little longer and all this type of stuff. So I bought a guitar for two packets of tobacco. And uh, Could you these... play guitar? No. And so uh, all these guys were in the yard. The families bought them in guitars and left them and... So I purchased this guitar and I, I didn't have a clue how to play. And because uh, I had all this stuff written down in this little black book. So I went into the yards and they were playing there and singing. And I said, listen, I've got a note in my head, a melody in my head. Strum it for me to accompany my voice, will you? And they did. And he said, well, that's, that's an E flat or that's an A minor or something like this. And I said, really? I had the tune, but I didn't have... The, uh, the, the musical backing, right. the chords, yeah. So uh, they showed me how to play. It, it sort of came natural. Three to five chords later, I had a 10-track album. So you were writing songs based on these memories. Yeah. But also about the place you were in, like about the jail as well? Well, I wrote a song called Living My Life by the Days, where you didn't have much choice. You just had to, to proclaim some of the lyrics as yesterday's history, tomorrow is a mystery, I'm living my life by the days. Now, at this point, Vic, this is when things 
get kind of crazy. This is when yeah. the highly improbable is met by something else that's highly improbable. First of all, you're this former child pop star mm. in prison and yeah. these songs are coming to you and you've never written songs before. Yeah. You've never played guitar before yeah. and suddenly there are these songs and you learn how to play. Yeah. How on earth does that turn into a major record label inviting you to record these yeah. songs in prison? Well, on a miserable cold day, I took my guitar down to the yard like many others and I I said to the boys in the yard, I said, look, I wrote some songs and now I can play them, I'll sing them for you, you know. And just at that moment, the, this group of social workers come past and they stood there and they listened to these songs and they, they stayed for some time. Some weeks later, the governor calls me over and says, Sims, he says, sit down. He said, remember a group of people walking past when you were singing for the boys in the yard? Well, it just so happens they want you to make a cassette tape. I'll give special permission for you to get a little cassette recorder in. And he said, you could sing and make the tape. And he said, the, the good thing about this, he says, is they want to send it away because they've approached RCA Records. That's Elvis' uh, label. Yeah, the biggest company in the world at that time, you know, and still is under Sony Music. And I said, really? And, he, and the governor said, yeah. And uh, some weeks later, after I sent the tape away, they said, we're sending you to Long Bay. You've got to sign a contract with RCA to release a 10-track album. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. So, Vic... You were taken in a special van down to Long Bay Jail. That's where you met with the bigwigs from RCA Records and, and you signed your contracts. And what happened after that? After the signing, I went back to Bathurst Jail. Then one cold Saturday, uh, some weeks later, a, a mobile recording van pulled into the yard and they said, we brought some musos up. This is happening. This thing's going ahead today. Where did you record it? In the dining room in X-Wing. It was the outside section of Bathurst Jail. And they had a captive audience, obviously. So we went into the tracks. I, I've never known these musos before. didn't know who they were. You, didn't, you hadn't met them? Never had, met had, them. had no contact had with no them? no inkling whatsoever who they were. What, how did they know? What had they been listening to the cassette? Or well, the, they had their A&R man, whose name was Rocky Thomas. So he drew up some charts of the chords they had, had down and... Uh, so we, we get a half an hour run through and uh, we've got an hour to make this in. It's a once only thing. An hour. An hour. And there's no going back. So you've got to do the best you can on what, each track. What did you think when you were told that? Well, I thought we could have got a little more time. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, but we yeah. did it, right? We did it. And in front of a live audience. Yeah, in front of, of a live of, audience. Of prisoners? Of prisoners. I'm living.
Was this this was around about the same time that Johnny Cash's Live at San Quentin album? Yeah, it wasn't all that long yeah. afterwards. I don't think either. You know, Do you think that's what they were thinking of? That there might be a similar kind of thing and have that. Well, kind of... I think it was, it was meant to be, but I didn't know the concept of it at the time. What it was all about? Tomorrow is no is no consolation. Cause who knows how life plays his game. Once you performed this and it was being recorded, yeah. were you happy with how it went? Well, really, yeah, I guess I was because I, I thought I could have done a lot better if I had more time. But obviously that didn't work out that way. So they took it down to Sydney and they uh, took it straight into the studios and put some brass and all this to it and it, it, it turned out okay. And I got to hear it. They said, well, I said, what happens now, you know? So they, again I got a, another special escort down to Long Bay. And, and I said, well, what am I here for? They said, you've got some concerts to do at the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> 1973, the first week it was opened. So they took me from one big house to another, you see. You were taken out of Long Bay Jail? Uh, yeah. And put on stage at the Sydney uh, Opera House? Yes. This was a day release thing? Was yeah, it? yeah. And then I went and done a couple of uh, malls, like to publicise the album, without handcuffs and all this type of thing. You know, I enjoyed all, all, all the stuff that was coming around, you know, the news crews coming into jail to film me doing inside concerts uh, of various prison concerts. Then it started to go a bit sour. Yeah, why? Why did it well, start to go sour? It was pretty tough times and a lot of the population thought I was getting preferential treatment. And some of the old heavies pulled me aside as they said, Vic, you know, you're making the prison system look good. And they said, will you drop off? So we're not threatening you or anything. We we just want you to understand uh, that they're using you to make uh, the, everything's hunky-dory in, in, in jails in New South Wales, which it wasn't. So uh, I said, I'm not, I'm not performing anymore. I wasn't worried about getting offside with, with, with the crims. But they were pretty decent about it. And they said, you know, don't give them the impression that everything's going well for us. And, the, and, and you're making their golden-haired boy to make the Department of Corrections look good. I said, okay, I'll, I'll drop off. You agreed, you agreed with that? Yeah, yeah. Because right. uh, uh, well, uh, uh, they were right in what they were saying. So what happened when you refused to well, do any more shows? they slapped me around a bit and they threw me into solitary confinement to try and change me, me mind. Then they shuffled me around to various prisons, uh, some of the no-hoping jails that existed, like Maitland, and I ended up on an island on the Hawk Hawkesbury River called Milson Island. It was a sort of the Alcatraz of, of the Australian prison system. I got discharged from there in about 1976, I think. What happened to the loner? Everything was gone. The loner was forgotten. I never existed anymore. So I got out and... It was all forgotten. What happened to the master tape of the I loner? don't know what ever happened to the master, but there was a follow-up to it at Albert Studios when I got out. Rocky Thomas still existed as at RCA Records, the guy who produced the album in Bathurst. He said, take a couple of more songs that you wrote, and we put them down, and they never ever come to light because uh, RCA decided to delete their Australian content of Aboriginal songs, you know. So once you got out of prison, how did you find your way back into music? Well, I went to a Retroville Result Club and some of the old guys I've worked with over the years were doing the Johnny O'Keefe Memorial Show, ex-bandstanders and six o'clock rockers and all this type of thing. 
And they said, why don't you catch up with us and join the troupe? I said, oh, I'm a bit rusty. So I went and done a few talent quests to gain some confidence. I won a few and I lost a few. And the singing under a pseudonym. But I found I still had what it takes to carry on. So I started doing the Johnny O'Keefe Memorial Shows back in all the clubs around Sydney and getting on my feet. I did albums for NREC Records out of uh, Tamworth with the Corey Classics along with colleagues such as, as Roger Knox. I did a couple of singles. Then came the revitalising era. I had a collector's album released. I did a sort of revival session right here in your very ABC studios. But the, the epitome of it all arrived when I got a, a demo record from a young man named Luke Peacock. I'm with Vic Sims. Vic grew up in an Aboriginal mission in La Perouse in Sydney. He became a child pop star in the 1950s and then was sent to prison where he recorded in prison 10 songs, 10 personal, raw songs about his life that was released as an album called The Loner. So you get a phone call from a guy yeah. called Luke Peacock mm-hmm. out of Brisbane. Yes. He rings you up right out of the blue. You've never heard him before. And he says, what are the lyrics to this song? And by the way, yeah. can I perform it? What did you think when you got that I phone thought, call? You know, I thought it, uh, he may think, wow, he's still alive, this guy. And I was quite impressed with what I heard. Luke, how did that conversation get you onto talking about taking on The Loner and re-recording The Loner? Well, once I'd sort of spoken to Vic a couple of times on the phone and Sort of got to know each other and I decided that I wouldn't only just maybe play this poor folk's happiness occasionally to show that I'd record my version of it and send it to him just as a gesture, you know, something nice, which I did. I just sort of whacked out this little demo and chucked it in the post. What did you think of it when you heard it? I was quite impressed. I was quite impressed. Your mom's a well-known socialite, your dad's in real estate. Was it different from the way you'd record oh, it? Yes, I mean, it was a quality to it and it was bouncing and it was... So I wondered, yeah, I said, let's, let's do what we can. But there was a finance thing about it. Then he applied to the Australia Council. I gave him a support letter and he got a grant enough to cover the expenses and the Painted Ladies was born, you see. How did you actually get to meet Vic for the first time face-to-face, Luke? Well, we were sort of starting to put it all together and it was obviously at a point now where I really wanted to meet Vic face-to-face and I wanted him to trust me, obviously. I I wanted him to get to know me and let him know that I wasn't going to give him the runaround that, that he may have got in the past. So I just thought first things first, it's really important to get him to meet me and my family and and stay at my house and meet my parents and and some of the other people involved and kick it off from there. So that's what happened. He jumped on a train and I met him at Roma Street. We spent the day together, had a barbecue at my house, got to, you know, bond on a more personal and a better level than corresponding via mail or over the phone, which was really nice. Who did you get to make the album with you, Luke? I'd seen the Medics play. They played a show with, with my other band and we played together. And I noticed that they were really good, that they were powerful and they had the chops, I guess. And I thought it would be great to have a black band do it. And they, they jumped on board. They thought it was a great idea. I played them the songs and they loved them. And 
wasn't long after that that Rusty Hopkinson got wind of what was happening and he got in touch. And Vic and Rusty have a... An affiliation that yeah, goes way back. Yeah. Somewhere in festivals, old archives, is a recording of you and I doing Back in the Shadows, but it got lost along the way. So that was the, the, the beginning of a friendship between Russell Hopkinson and myself. Paul Kelly put his hand up. Yeah, Paul Ed Kelly. Cooper Ed Cooper put his Cooper. hand up. Yeah, Paul was great from the start getting, you know, the, the funding together to make this happen because, uh, like I said to Vic at the beginning, I really want to do this, but if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly because I felt that, as Vic was saying earlier, you know, he could have had a bit more time to put into these, to, to record these songs. So. <laughs> more than an hour and ten minutes. Yeah. yeah, so that was sort of the, the way I, I looked at the whole project and I said, if we're going to do it, I'm, I'm going to do it properly this time. So, Vic, was there a point where you'd given up on the loner as an I album? did, I did. I've got to be truthful. I, I thought, well, you know, where has it gone? I, I couldn't even get a copy of it myself, you know. I Giving it away to relations to listen to and... Uh, and, and uh, like the old boomerang myth, it just never returned at this time, you see. A friend of mine tracked it down in Adelaide and paid $800 for it. and uh, Copies it, were fetching $800? Yeah, and gave it to me as, as a, a Christmas gift. So it's a rebirth of the of the loner. And How lovely is that, Vic? If yes, you do have, have this in your late 60s. Yeah. Well, it sort of rejuvenated me as well because I, I had a little trail of, of illness between the last few years, and Luke not only has re rejuvenated me musically, he's re rejuvenated and, and lifted my life uh, physically as well. Judging by the media blurbs that I've seen written, it's uh, becoming quite a, a classic of great acceptance. The song Stranger in My Country, how well do you think that song, the message of that song, holds up today, Vic? I think it adds up very well because Aboriginal issues are becoming quite a known factor within within the reworking of the Constitution. And I feel that the, the history of, of the song and the songs surrounding it will pertain to some historic political value as well as musical value, but more so since the, the re-release of the Loner Classic rehashed and redone by Luke Peacock. And I am so pleased this has all come together. And everywhere it's been, it's been quite... Only accepted. Luke, you brought Vic back into the studio to re-record I Want a Bop, but yeah. with a kind of much more raunchy rockabilly kind of back to it. What was it like to bring Vic into the studio once again and, and kind of unleash him on this song he once recorded back in the 1950s? That was, I, I remember that clearly. That whole idea was actually from who I mentioned earlier, Rusty Hopkinson, who ended up being uh, the producer of the album. Uh, it was almost a prerequisite of his. If I'm going to do this, we're going to do I Want a Bop, and I'm going to drum that one. <laughs> so we did that. And, yeah, he's, obviously you can hear how wonderful it is, and we got Vic in to sing the part. That was something really amazing, you know, because it was pouring rain. Mm. I think he got lost. And then we event, you know, eventually sort of came around the corner and you get like raincoat on your scooter and seemingly unprepared. And as soon as the tape rolled, you just sort of, belted this song out and had, had us all in the control room looking at each other just bewildered of how good it was and it's just great.
I haven't sang this song since 1961, for God's sake. In and the same key yeah. as well, you know, <laughs> as when you were 11 or whatever. <laughs> the original album of the London, the original recording, yeah. has been remastered and re-released on Sandman Records yes. as well. To me, this is like a story where you make something mm. in the early 1970s and you put your whole heart and soul into it to make it a, like a kind of treasure. Yeah. And you put it out and it just kind of fades away. It sort of goes right mm. out. And then it comes right back to you. Uh, yeah, just when well, you thought you'd, you'd lost it, it, it's, yeah, and, and well, it surprises. It's had its moments of history as well. I mean, it was inducted into the Sound sound Archives of Australia, you know, along with Ellen Reddy and Yathu Yindi. So it's done a magic journey to be recognised and held in that Sound and sound Archive Hall of Fame. So uh, it was out there, but it was it was there, but it was going nowhere. Until up come Russell Hopkinson and Luke Peacock and Paul Kelly and people like this to give it an all new meaning. I mean, uh, Stranger in My Country has gone from three minutes to about eight minutes uh, with all these musical interludes and, and all parts and parcel of various vocals and musical interludes. Well, everyone, the everyone wants to look into that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Just finally, Vic, you talked really beautifully at the start about La Perouse, you know. That's my country. How connected are you with it today? Well, I'm very much recognised as being a spokesman for my people. I am an elder. I'm a traditional owner of that area because I'm the last man standing who was actually born on La Perouse Reserve in a great uh, time of the modern era of living in, around Botany Bay. And I represent them and they represent me. And first and foremost, look, I was the official ambassador of, for Aboriginal Australia in the 2000 Olympics. And I greeted the, the last running of the torch on the town hall steps as a prominent member of Aboriginal Australia. Maybe my, my life will become more prominent as a memory to my family and to my, my grandchildren, who number 15 at this time, and I'm still counting, I think, for more. It's been really lovely hearing you both tell this story. Luke and Vic, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure, brother. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. I spoke with Vic Sims and Luke Peacock in 2015. Luke continues to write, play, and record music. Since we spoke, Vic Sims has been honoured by the National Indigenous Music Awards Hall of Fame. Vic's album The Loner was also named among the 110 best Australian albums. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.